Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 19, produced 29 November 2015. Whiskey. Scotch. When it comes to Scotland and spirits, that's the connection most often thought of. Whiskey is a huge export product for Scotland. Yet, within its own borders, there's a new kid on the block. Gin. In this, Scotland's year of food and drink, the craft gin business is booming. New distilleries and labels are appearing seemingly overnight, including names like Rock Rose Gin, Edinburgh Gin, and Firkin Gin. So pour yourself a cup of tea, or if you're so inclined, a nice gin and tonic, as we're about to learn much about Scotland's craft gin industry, and one of the newest of those new labels, Firkin Gin, here under the tartan sky. Here in Scotland, 2015 is the year of food and drink, a celebration of the country's outstanding natural larder and produce. From artisan cheeses and world-renowned whiskies to succulent seasonal berries and Arbroath Smokies, there's an abundance of delicious regional flavours round every corner. Discover the landscapes, people and culture that make our food heritage so unique and enjoy a feast of events and festivals throughout the year. Come and experience a true taste of Scotland. Would you be surprised to learn that 70% of gin in the entire United Kingdom is produced in Scotland? It's a fact, as is the news that Scotland's craft gin industry, highlighted by small boutique distilleries and bottlers, is awakening within Scots a new appreciation for the art of handcrafted gin-making. Where just three years ago there were as few as a dozen craft distillers in the UK, today there are over 75, and that number is growing. The market is also seeing a shift in the consumer demographics, with gin enjoying a new popularity among the 20- and 30-something crowd, based in part on the tremendous variety of gins now available each with its own unique recipe and taste. The surge in the industry is so significant that there is now a new Scottish Craft Distillers Association who honor a craft spirit of the year. In June of last year, another new organization, Gin Club of Scotland, emerged with its mission statement to, quote, bring artisanal gin to the masses, running tasting sessions the length and breadth of the country and beyond, end quote. One of the newest gins to appear in Scotland is Firkin Gin, a product not of a distillery, but of independent bottler Glenmore Spirits Company, a purveyor of rare fine whiskies, and themselves a recent new addition to Scotland's spirit industry. Glenmore is located in Dunbar, East Lothian, and their Firkin Gin debuted only six months ago. Despite the wide varieties of craft gins already available, Firkin is making waves for its originality not just in taste, but for its golden coloration, achieved from the unusual step of maturing in American oak casks, and for its unique wax-sealed bottle, complete with pewter labeling. 
Stephen Shand is formerly with the Scotch Malt Whiskey Association. He's also a former manager of the independent Scottish spirits retailer Castle Hill Whiskey on the Royal Mile in Edinburgh, and is today a freelance spirits ambassador, representing several Scottish drinks company, including Glenmore Spirits. Before discussing Firkin Gin specifically, I asked Stephen to share with us his insights behind the surging popularity in craft distilling. In other words, who or what is responsible for this newfound interest in gin? It's a very, very interesting question. And I don't think there is there's one simple explanation for it. You've got to look at a couple of different factors. Uh, the first one would be the, the larger spirits producers. So um, people like William Grant and Sons, for example, uh, they, uh, when I kind of think back as to what you'd refer to as a craft gin or something that's a little bit more specialist would be the Hendrix. Um, and that was 1998. And William Grant and Sons, they're known for, in the UK at least, for their Grant's blended whiskey. They're known for their single malts, uh, Glenfiddich and Belveni. But what they decided to do is expand their, their range and enter into a new category. So that's when they released the Hendrix Gin. And that's, um, that's down in Girvin, where they also produce their, their grain. And they've made a kind of a gin palace down there, which uh, they do their production. And you can go and get tours. So it's a larger company diversifying and what also happened is you had a lot of whiskey producers distilleries um, that also wanted to diversify uh, Brook Laddie on Isla is a perfect example um, they uh, when they first well they, they restarted up in 2001 um, they installed a Lowman still which is an adjustable column plate still that they don't use for making whiskey so they started producing a botanist gin uh, which uses local herbs and and and, uh, and and botanicals actually from Isla. So those two in particular, and the other one I would say is Balmenic. Uh, Balmenic Distillery, which is owned by Inverhouse, which is actually now owned by Inbev, which is actually a very, very large international uh, company. Um, they produce the Karun Gin. So you've actually got a whiskey distillery using their copper pot stills to produce a gin. So that's three kind of big flagship products there that aren't little boutique distilleries or smaller companies, but suddenly... They, they jump into the market with these new interesting gins. And following suit with that is, is the second part, which are the smaller new distilleries. Uh, these might just be specifically making gin, but on site they can produce gin, vodka, and might be developing whiskey as well. The, the ease with gin is you can make it almost instantly. You know, it's not like whiskey where you've got to get it into a barrel and let it sit for three years. You can hire somebody and, and design a really nice, interesting gin, use local botanicals if you want. And then, you know, you get it distilled and, and it's ready to bottle and sell relatively quickly. So you can you can kind of start on something. And I think for me in particular, when I first came back up to Edinburgh in 2009, I remember getting a bottle for my sister and I went into a shop. And the first one I bought was Blackwood's. And Blackwoods is from Shetland, and um, they've got two different, a navy strength and a standard gin now. And I remember when I was talking to the retailer at the time, and I, I didn't know a huge amount about spirits back then. He's like, oh, these guys are going to be producing whiskey soon, but they're, they're doing gin first. Hmm. And with Blackwoods, the whiskey's never come. I think they've been so successful with the gin that they've just decided to continue with that. Although I have seen now they're producing a vodka. So you suddenly got this huge explosion of little small craft distilleries that, you know, they might make their whiskey, but for now they're producing gin, they're producing vodka, just to get the awareness of what they're doing out there, you know. There's, there's various reasons. Um, and other than the new distilleries that 
are going to be producing whiskey, gin, and vodka on site, you then have the very, very small boutique, uh, small batch distilleries. So uh, Rock Rose, uh, Gordon Castle, uh, which actually produce, you know, they grow their own botanicals on site in their own walled garden. Uh, Pickerings that are in Edinburgh, they're actually local to me. I could walk five minutes and get to the distillery. I think they have some of the most incredible gin and some of the highest standards I've ever seen. Um, I, I went over there to uh, buy some bottles for when I was running a retail shop and they dip each bottle in wax. And um, I asked them if I could dip my own bottle and they said, absolutely not. Um, it takes, you know, the, the person who does that has been doing that for, for weeks and weeks to perfect it. We, we couldn't have you, you know, dip in one in the angle being slightly different or dripping off, you know, it's just not the standard that we adhere to, you know, they were, very very obsessive they're the kind of um stanley kubrick of gin producers <laughs> if you will you know um and then you've got edinburgh gin which although originally you know they take the title edinburgh gin they weren't the first of the modern gin distilleries um they were actually being produced by spencerfield but very recently they've set up a boutique cocktail bar where you actually go downstairs into this little secret um cocktail bar and there's uh gin stills and they produce the gin on site, two tiny little stills, and they do everything there on site now. And you can actually go and sit for a couple of hours with a miniature Alembic still and distill one bottle of your own uh, recipe gin. So there's just this, this huge expansion since I, I would say the market, the marker point, if you could do it, was 1998 with Hendrix. And then, you know, things like Blackwoods um, and then um, your kind of uh, your, your Edinburgh gins and things like that. And it just kept expanding and expanding. So th there's been this growth in, as you say, the small boutique distilleries. And even that, though, seems a bit surprising because am I not correct that gin has always been thought of as, well, as an English or as a London drink, in fact? And yet some of the major gins um, that are thought to be English are actually uh, distilled in Scotland. Yeah, there's actually a very simple uh, reason for that, and that's because the majority of uh, spirit production in the UK is actually done in the central belt of Scotland. So um, in Edinburgh, for example, we have North British Grain Distillery. Uh, there's Cameron Brig Distillery, uh, Girvin, which I already mentioned. These are giant, you couldn't, you can't think of them in the same way you think of a single malt distillery, a pretty little uh, stone building. These are giant plants that produce between 30 and 100 million liters of spirits a year. And yes, they produce grain spirit for going into your blended whiskey, but they also produce neutral raw spirits spirit that goes into vodka and gin so uh, there's a huge amount of spirit production that's actually done up here we've got the equipment it's already set up so you know th these that that's where nowadays the spirit production is done obviously if you go further back in time and you talk about things like uh oh god i mean there's, there's hogarth's um was it hogarth's gin street and versus beer street and obviously you talk about bathtub gins and illegal production down in london and things like that but but nowadays it the, the modern production is definitely up here in Scotland. One of the um, the newest gins on the scene in Scotland is Firkin Gin, which comes from Glenmore Spirits Company. And they're not even a distillery. They are a bottler, I guess. And when I say bottler, I think of uh, like Coca-Cola <laughs> or, yeah. or Iron Brew. So tell me a little bit about Glenmore and the uniqueness of them, and then we'll get on to Firkin Gin. The official term, I suppose, with Glenmore uh, Spirits is they are an independent bottler. 
and that that is a category that is a, a type of company that, that we have here in Scotland and the idea is rather than owning your own distillery you buy spirits from other companies and you bottle it yourself and that's existed for uh, hundreds of years uh, Berry Brothers and Rudd, uh, Cadenheads I believe are, are some of the earliest and they go back to the 19th century and that was mainly for whiskey and by and large independent bottlers have always been sourcing single casks or casks of whiskey to bottle under their own terms really they can bottle it at the age they want the strength they want but nowadays again like the larger companies they've decided well hey you know we maybe we can source some gin and do something interesting with it so uh glenmore spirits they've been uh, an independent bottler now for the last 18 months they bottle some uh, very very obscure whiskey that you wouldn't normally find uh, independently bottled so that can be at full cash strength you know 55 to 65 percent in alcohol Unchill filtered. Uh, they've done Ardbeg, Lagavulin brands that you would never see in that form. You know, normally the the forty six percent in alcohol and you know marketed and branded by by the the larger companies. Uh, but Glenmore have been doing that for the last eighteen months. And the, the nature of single cask whiskey is it's very small batch. You only get two hundred to three hundred bottles at a time. So by releasing a gin you could have a more consistent product uh, and that's where i think uh, they decided to go for producing an oak age gin which is the the firkin gin that you mentioned and yet they are also releasing firkin in very small batches aren't they yes uh it's it ranges between 100 to 250 bottles um per batch and the, the restriction on that is the the wooden barrels that they're sourcing and using for the maturation of the whiskey Uh, Sorry, the gin, excuse me. Yes, gin, okay. And tell me a little bit about the uniqueness of this maturation process using the the oak barrels, because transporting gin in barrels, in a sense, maturing it in in barrels, uh, dates way back into Britain's seafaring days. And in fact, when it was transported by barrel, obviously, as happens with whiskey, uh, some of the coloring, some of the flavoring uh, of the barrels, if they were used previously for another spirit, um, seeps into the gin, and I think the term yellow gin was used mm-hmm. back in the day. I'm, I'm not sure if it still is because of the coloration that came from that. Why mature a gin in the oak barrel? What led Glenmore down that road, and what what is it that makes that product therefore unique? First thing, um, I, I I haven't really heard yellow gin be used anymore. Um, maybe just because it uh, it comes across as quite unattractive name these days, <laughs> rather than uh, you know barrel matured yellow gin. I, I, I don't know, um, but yeah, th- th- there is obviously a historical context uh, with the transportation of spirits from the UK to, to places like America or even India. Uh, beer was matured in barrels as well. It was just the transportation vessel that was used during the Victorian era. There was no other option. Um, and that's what led to the eventual understanding of maturation, the influence of, of wood on spirit. And that obviously led for whiskey, at least for the two year and then eventually three year minimum maturation. Um, Gins, however, I think that once it was possible to move away from that, they produced a lighter, clearer style. Um, But nowadays, there's definitely been a resurgence in barrel-matured gin. There's a fair few in America, and even in Scotland, Glenmore aren't the only ones. The the difference with the Glenmore Firkin gin is uh, they're they're using what's referred to as uh, Firkin barrels, uh, hence the name. Um, And these are small barrels. They're um, about 40 litres, which would be... Is that, is that nine gallons uh, for yourself, if that makes more sense? Um, yeah, if the, the, you the, say so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
very, very, very small barrels. I mean, an American whiskey barrel, for example, is about 200 liters. Um, so that's what you mature in your bourbon spirit in. Uh, for Scottish whiskey, we're using a 200 liter American uh, style, or we're using a 250, what's referred to as a hogshead. But with the Firkin barrel, what's really unusual is its size. So the smaller the barrel, the higher concentration of spirit to wood ratio you have. And as with, as with any kind of chemical reaction, surface area and increased amount of surface area will lead to a more efficient maturation. So by using very, very small barrels, it means that you can add a real intensity from the wood tannins and the vanillins in the barrel in a relatively short period of time. These barrels are also virgin American oak. So again, if you're familiar with, uh, with bourbons and rye, um, you've got a heavy uh, char inside the cask and that char that carbon char actually takes out impurities in the spirit so sulfurs negative flavors so it'll cleanse it uh, very very efficiently um and then uh virgin oak you get huge huge influences of uh vanillin and sugars from the cask so that's you know a lot of vanilla toffee caramel notes coming through and I, I, I've tried quite a few orchid gins, and I, I actually ran my own retail shop as well. And I, I can quite confidently say that Firkin has probably got the heaviest oak influence uh, of any orchid gin that I've tried. You just used the term oak aged, and yet we're not talking, as I think you've said, we're not talking about gin being aged in barrels for two or three years or having 12 and 16 and, and 24-year-old gins yeah. as we do whiskey. We're actually talking about this mature this maturation process is what? Only a few weeks, right? It's uh, For the firkin, I believe it's six to nine months. Um, oh, okay. They, they, they can finish. Um, so they've released a, an Isla cask, uh, which was finished for a shorter amount of time in the Isla cask. The, the, again, the reason for this uh, much shorter period of time is down to the size and the freshness of a barrel. So to give you an example, uh, we've already talked about size, 200, 250 liters for maturation of whiskey. Those barrels that are used to mature whiskey uh, in Scotland uh, are used up to five times. You have its virgin use, which is uh, could be American whiskey or sherry from Jerez in Spain or uh, port. Um, that's its virgin use. Then it comes over to Scotland. You have first fill, because uh, for Scots, it's, it's not used until they've put their whiskey in it. So that's the first <laughs> fill. Uh, uh, then you have second fill, and then what's referred to as just refill, uh, which is quite big. And, you know, you could have a refill cask that's maybe been used four or five times. So there's not much left in terms of uh, active uh, tannins in the wood at this point. So, you know, it, that can take years and years. And I sit on tasting panels and try different whiskies, and I've seen 30, 40-year-old whiskey that's been poured that's very, very pale, and you can tell the cask is very, very inactive. So it's it's the freshness of using a, a virgin oak barrel um, that really adds that big, heavy tannins. And uh, again, with American whiskey, that's why American whiskey, I find, is a bit more intense and bolder uh, than, than a Scottish whiskey, where Scotch can be more subtle and varied because we reuse the different barrels, and that's bringing it back to the gin is is the core reason because it's fresh barrels and also because those casks are so small you get an incredibly efficient maturation whiskeys also in addition to the influences from the barrels whiskeys have their own recipes obviously distillery mm-hmm. to distillery and the same is true of gin i mean it is a botanical and yet so many different gins and especially as we're talking with these new uh, boutique craft gins everyone's playing with their own recipe 
Is there anything particularly interesting or different, unusual in Firkin's recipe? Well, in terms of botanicals, obviously uh, juniper is the the one that is used the most and in every single gin. By by definition, it has to have juniper in there. Then in terms of the actual botanicals in Firkin, there's not that many. It's fairly simplified uh, to be a London dry style. So the, the wood does the talking. There'd be no point putting in 15, 20 local botanicals into this gin and then adding the, the wood influence because the wood influence is just so heavy. So it's, it's quite restrained, actually. So you've got coriander seeds, which is adding your spice, your citrus notes, uh, kind of elevates it and make it a little bit more fruitier. Angelica root, which is uh, the third most common ingredient in any gin. Um, and that adds, again, a, a kind of nice uh, bitter herbal backbone uh, which kind of mingles quite well with the, the juniper bitterness and then the the other ingredient is orris roots uh, which um, is used a lot in uh, Moroccan cuisine um, and I think a lot of it these days is sourced from Italy for a uh, production of uh, gin and that adds bitter spice and apparently a raspberry note as well so th- those are the three uh, un- kind of core botanicals I would say orris root angelica and coriander seed it's distilled four times so we're keeping it very, very clean and light. And then it's the virgin oak maturation. So, yeah, if you compare that to, say, uh, botanist gin, for example, from Isla, they use 22 botanicals, you know, a huge, huge amount. And they are sourcing local botanicals from the island. So it's a representative flavor of that area. The same is true of the new Harris gin that's about to be released. They're actually a seaweed gin and they're using local seaweed and local botanicals. That's how it differs. The firkin is very, very simple on its kind of botanicals, just so we can really highlight the lovely kind of butterscotch note that comes through from the firkin, uh, firkin barrels. And, and firkin, as as I, we've said, is fairly new. It was only launched some months ago now, and yet it is, I've seen it, capturing a significant media attention in tastings. Um, most recently, I think Luxury Scotland had Firkin on the top of their list of 10 remarkable Scottish gins. Yeah. As someone who works in the spirit industry there, is that surprising to you? Does that speak to the quality of Firkin gin? Yeah, it, it does really show how much effort has gone into it because th- this gin can never be kind of scaled up into mass production. It is produced uh, in a very small scale only a couple of barrels maturing at a time. It is hand bottled, hand dipped in wax. The the investment and the effort to go in to get virgin oak barrels into the UK, um, the price of American oak barrels has doubled in the last year. Um, so it really is a quality product and it, you're never going to see it just stocked in every single supermarket. It is for kind of quality bars and restaurants. And, and yeah, we're, we're very, very proud of it. We launched it. Um, it was Mark Greenaway's uh, Bistro Modern um, in Edinburgh that it was launched in May. And I, I remember attending at the time, um, and this was my kind of introduction to Glenmore and to Firk and Gin. And I thought it was just going to be maybe one or two cocktails and a light bite, but it was an introductory cocktail, which was the Firkin with uh, ginger ale, vanilla, and orange. And then we had another four cocktails on top of that, matched with uh, individual courses, just to really show the quality of the spirit and its diversity. And it's been set up in quite a lot of the the retailers on the Royal Mile. Anyone who's familiar with trekking up and down the Royal Mile in Edinburgh, you know there's there's a dozen kind of specialist whiskey and spirit shops there and it it stands quite proudly in those shops and we're kind of diversifying out into the rest of the UK with it now. 
You mentioned that that debut, the dinner party. I read about that. A couple of bloggers wrote about it and uh, that each course was accompanied by a different cocktail featuring Firk and Gin. One reviewer that I read even went so far, though, as to say that while it worked brilliantly in the cocktails, they didn't think it was suitable for what is probably the most well-known gin drink. And that, of course, is gin and tonic. How would you react to that? Yeah, um, I, myself personally, when I drink Firkin, I tend to drink it neat on ice or uh, I mix it in a cocktail. I think the problem is not using the right quality of tonic. If you use a tonic that's really, really heavy with the, uh, the, the quinine, then that kind of numbing, bitter flavor is really going to counteract with the kind of lovely butterscotch notes that the gin has. So you've you got to use a very good quality tonic. It, it will work if you find the right one. My ideal serve and what I actually recommend to people when they first try it is have it with uh, with ginger beer. I think it works very, very well. That ginger spice works with the spiciness of uh, the, the botanicals and that wood note. So, yeah, maybe it's not your classic G&T drink, uh, but definitely with a ginger beer. I think it works very, very well. Now you're making me want to open up my, my collectible <laughs> baby bottle and uh, and pop a bottle of ginger beer and have a taste. Ah, you should give it a try. We'll, we'll try and get hold of another miniature and we can send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> send well, us a picture that shows it's empty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, well, and Yeah, but that, that was definitely the – we tried, uh, I think, five different cocktails that night. And I don't know if it was just because it was the first one, but that's what struck me. It was just the simplicity, ginger beer, a slice of orange with, with the firkin, and I think it worked very, very well. You mentioned that they are dipped in wax. So if I come over, can I can I dip my own bottle? <laughs> um, I think if you pop into yeah, if you you go see uh, it would be Derek that you would see at Dunbar, and uh, yeah, I'm sure he'd let you do that. Yeah, just, yeah. I, I was just very very careful. Make it look look the business. Yeah, I, I was just uh, I couldn't resist that from your story earlier about not being able to dip your own bottle at the other uh, distillery. But let's talk a minute about the bottle because. The Firkin presentation, beyond the uniqueness of the gin itself, the presentation is quite unique. A unique bottle and particularly unique labeling with with pewter metal labeling on the bottle. Yeah, it really, really does look smart. And I think the the idea with this gin, you know, it, it is a premium gin. We really want it to stand, you know, with confidence on a shop shelf or, or in a bar. So when people see it, you know, they go, what is that? That really is quite unique. Um, and it, it does look very, very smart. The hand wax, I think, just helps showcase just how much attention and how small batch this gin is. And then the pewter, I think, is just a very, very strong way of representing the brand and, and just, yeah, making it look very, very smart. So there's the standard firkin, uh, which is 46%. And we have now released what is uh, the Isla Rested firkin. So you take the standard gin that's been matured for six to nine months in a virgin oak barrel, and that's been re-racked or re-matured in an Isla cask. So it's a smoky uh, Isla gin, um, and that's got a, a black uh, wax top to make it look a little bit more uh, foreboding and ominous because it's, uh, it's quite a big, intense, smoky gin, that one. It's uh, very unusual. So the Isla matured, is that is that a refill in a previous whiskey cask? Yes. Glenmore at the beginning of the summer, released a single cask, Lagavulin. And um, Lagavulin, Isla Whiskey, when they got it, they, they, they drew a sample and it came out quite pale. And having an abundance of uh, small virgin oak barrels, they decided to re-mature um, a Lagavulin. 
so I think I could say with confidence, Glenmore are the only company to ever produce a double matured virgin oak finish Lagavulin. So that got released, but then you've got this 60 litre cask that reeks of Isla whiskey is tainted. So what do you do with it? Uh, so um, Derek at Glenmore decided to put a gin in there. So we've now got this uh, double matured kind of Isla whiskey, smoky infused gin. It's very, very unusual stuff. Sounds interesting. Um, I'll have to contact Derek and see if I can get uh, a bottle of, of that. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I believe only a hundred bottles of that have been produced so far, but Glenmore are, are bottling four or five single cask whiskies every month. And if they bottle uh, an Isla whiskey, such as Bowmore or Kalila or Ardbeg, I suppose there's nothing to stop them then filling that cask with uh, Firkin gin and producing a series of uh, smoky gins, uh, which are, yeah, they're very, very odd. Big kind of additional smoky, salty note alongside the uh, the medicinal and wood flavors. It's, uh, yeah, very unique. The revival of the gin industry in Scotland sounds wonderful. I mean, it's great to have, uh, as someone who has a passion for Scotland, I'm thrilled anytime that I see something becoming a success. But in doing the research for this podcast, one of the things I read is that the juniper crop in, in the UK and Scotland is generally considered to be the stronghold of juniper within the UK, um, that it's in serious trouble because of, uh, of a fungal disease of all things. Is that of concern going forward, especially as we're seeing more and more and more gin production, uh, that's going to require a, a greater use of the existing uh, juniper crop. Is there concern within the gin industry about that? And, and if so, what's being done? It's a great question. I mean, I, I remember seeing that article being circulated online and actually some people I know in, in the industry were circulating that email as well. Um, I think the, the short answer is no. Uh, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, Juniper, it, it's, it's got one of the largest geographical ranges of any kind of woody plants in the world. You can, you know, it grows in Greenland, Iceland, Alaska, all the way over to North Asia and Japan. Uh, God, it was about six months ago I was sat in a bar in Edinburgh with some people who, uh, who uh, do the Harriet Watt Brun and Distilling course. And a lot of these guys are the people who are actually going out and producing and designing these small boutique distilleries. And he had just come back from um, Nepal and he had um, juniper that had grown on the mountains of Nepal and he's going to be making a, a Scottish gin with it. Um, and the, the actual fact is a lot of the juniper um, for making gins in the UK is actually cheekily supplied from the rest of Europe. Um, so I, I, I do see what you're saying. Uh, I think it's up to 70% of these juniper plants are seen as being incredibly old or infected, and there may be issues there. But that's probably only going to affect, unfortunately, some of the very, very small boutique ones that are trying to 100% locally source everything. But I think the the fact is, if there is ever an issue there, then you have to look somewhere else to get your, your, uh, your juniper. Uh, it's very, very reminiscent of stories that I hear uh, in the wine industry with shortage of grapes, in the whiskey industry with shortage of barrels. Uh, even lately, there's been talks about environmental issues with uh, using peat on Isla. There's always occasionally this little shock of, oh, are we going to run out of something? And I think at worst, it's maybe going to raise the price of juniper a little bit. But I, I don't I don't think Scotland relies too much on its local crop, uh, crop to be honest. I think a lot of it's sourced elsewhere. 
Well, and you said earlier, uh, obviously, juniper is the prime ingredient in any gin. And yet, uh, as we've discussed, there is a great deal of flexibility in the uh, recipe. So is it yes. conceivable that if there should become uh, a problem with uh, the world's juniper supply, that we would see greater experimentation in uh, recipes and maybe see some new, some even newer gin uh, gins released that have, um, I, I still can't get over Hendrix, for example, that uses cucumbers. <laughs> There's just yeah. something, something wrong about that, it seems like, yeah. but, but it's a wonderful <laughs> gin. Um, but uh, might we see juniper somehow being re- not replaced, but certainly supplanted with some other type of uh, major ingredient? If that were to happen, the, the definition of the spirit would then change from gin because, I, I, sorry, I, I'm not able to quote you the exact, but you have to have a certain quantity of juniper in the spirit for it to be defined as gin. Uh-huh. And if it falls below that, I suppose it would then be, um, or what would it then be? It would be a kind of schnapps, an aquavit. Uh, you know, you're using different botanicals. Um, so it, it still would have to be of a higher quantity of juniper. To date, the, the only two places that have been recorded to have this kind of uh, peril with their crops is Argentina and the UK. Uh, that's the only two places, uh, first Argentina, and then people aren't really sure how this kind of uh, infectious disease that's affecting the plants came into the UK, but it's still a small, small quantity. I, I can't see the worldwide juniper crops hitting any, any major issue uh, just yet. And in terms of the, the other botanicals, distilleries are already doing that. I've already talked about botanists that are putting in their local botanicals, Gordon Castle that are growing their own on site. You know, people are using local and experimenting with really unusual ingredients in the gin to, to really stamp out the, their own identity. One of the things we should talk about uh, relative to Firkin gin, and for that matter, any gin, gin does have some amazing um, health qualities. You know, we've seen reports <laughs> in the last few years that a glass of red wine a day is is good for your heart. I remember posting to my social media pages an item that was circulating that talked about the health, uh, the healthy benefits of drinking whiskey, which I was glad to see as I've become a whiskey drinker. And now that I'm dabbling in gin, I uh, was excited to see that gin has a, allegedly the, the healthiest of, of all alcohols. So are we talking about a firkin a day keeps the doctor away? I, uh, <laughs> yeah, Glenn, I, I think um, allegedly was the word that we, we have to uh, <laughs> highlight there. Yeah. Um, got got to be very very careful. Um, I, I've worked in the drinks industry for for a fairly long time now, and one of the things we we do have to emphasise is responsible drinking, um, particularly in Scotland. Um, I, I think, oh God, what was it? It's forty six bottles of vodka per person are drank a year in in Scotland, which are way above the healthy kind of uh, recommended daily allowances. Um, so we, we do have to be fairly responsible when we talk about benefits of drinking alcohol i mean you can say that gin is definitely low in calories um as but as is other spirits it's much lower in calories when you compare it to wine insider and beer uh juniper uh there's a long long documented history of how juniper uh, aids uh, stomach ailments i think it was uh, used in egypt um as a cure for uh, tapeworms whether that worked or not. And uh, in Greece, uh, the um, athletes used to eat juniper to uh, apparently make them a little bit uh, speedier when they were when they were running. Uh, whether any of that is true, I really don't know. 
Um, obviously, the botanicals as well, if you're using various types of herbs, they've got long documentation of having, you know, curing of ailments. But if you're mixing that with a distilled spirit, um, I think there's the possibility that the alcohol will offset any of the benefits <laughs> of, um, of, of the botanicals. And it's it's been an excuse for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's not just a modern thing. If you actually think about production and distribution of alcohol, it was the alchemists who were the first kind of Alembic distillers back in you know Egypt and with the Arabs and things like that. And then eventually your Catholic uh, monks it was, you know, they were distilling and it was for medicinal purposes. These are these these are strange tonics that would cure you. Yes. And even if you go as, uh, as, as kind of modern as uh, American Prohibition, uh, there's stories of uh, Scotsmen traveling to uh, America and in something that I suppose is reminiscent of uh, modern day uh, cannabis laws, you could buy uh, medicinal whiskey during Prohibition time in America. Um, and it would be Scottish whiskey. It would have the Surgeon General's label on the front, and it's be used for uh, medicinal purposes. But then when you turn the bottle over, it had a, a, a Laphroaig label on the back. So it was smoky <laughs> Scottish whiskey. So there's, there's always been excuses made uh, to, to kind of say the benefits of drinking a spirit. Yeah, I, I'm reminded in the in the days of the of the wild wild west here in the states of the traveling medicine shows and uh, mm-hmm. you know the Doctor Feelgood's magic elixir kind of thing that that cured all your ailments from rheumatism right on down. Um, yeah, the kind of snake oil. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly, snake oil salesman. And, and I have bad knees, and uh, one of the things that they mentioned was how it was you know great for your joints. And I thought, oh good, I just need to start drinking you know, a bottle of gin a day and help you fine. I think the truth is I just wouldn't care about the pain at that point. Um, <laughs> but it, yeah, it, it's, just, it's the same with a, a hot toddy yes. uh, over here, I suppose. You have your, your whiskey hot toddy and the, the, the honey soothes and the, uh, the whiskey numbs is the, the kind of the way we explain it. One of the things you mentioned early on that with Firkin, you tend to drink it neat. I was reading another reviewer who mentioned the same thing, uh, that it, gin was becoming a sipping drink. Um, yes. I think it's always been thought of as a, as a cocktail mixer. Is that a something new that's emerging in the um, in the enjoyment of gin to to have it become not so much a mixer, but now a sipping drink, a, a drink to be enjoyed neat or on the rocks? Absolutely. Um, it wasn't even that long ago that people didn't drink whiskey neat. You know, they were drinking it with quite a lot of water, um, especially if you go back to the, the, the 1980s. Um, when I first stumbled across gin being drank neat was at the Royal Mile Whiskey's uh, Whiskey Fringe show that they do every year uh, during a Edinburgh Festival in August. And we're in there and there's there's hundreds of people. You've got a four-hour session where you try various different whiskies. And lo and behold, there were Brook Laddie um, with their botanist gin. And they weren't serving it in a fancy cocktail. They didn't have the equipment there. They weren't pouring it with tonic. They literally, you had that one glass that you were using for your whiskey. You washed it out and they poured you a little bit of uh, of the botanist gin. And God, was it amazing neat. It was absolutely stunning. Just just sipping it neat. All that really lovely, intense botanicals, the elderflower, the, uh, the cardamom and the cumin that they use in there. And that was the first time I'd ever thought of just drinking gin neat and sipping it. And some of these really quality ones now that are using very, very good botanicals or are mellowing the whiskey through, uh, sorry, mellowing the gin through um, uh, wood maturation, you absolutely can sip it neat. Or just pour, maybe chuck in a cube of ice if you want it a little bit cooler. 
and you can enjoy it in that way. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a definite change in that was maybe only three years ago. Um, but it, it's definitely happening. And, and so with regard to Firkin, if, uh, for someone who's going to try it for the first time, you mentioned the cocktail with the ginger beer, what would be your recommendation for your first uh, taste testing as it were of Firkin gin? It would be the same recommendation for any spirit. Try it neat first. Always try it in its raw state from the bottle so you know what it is. It's like uh, you wouldn't add salt and pepper to your food without trying the food first. And you taste that. If you find it too harsh, uh, then okay, you then dilute it with something. If you find it's got a really unique, interesting flavor that might inspire you to make a, an interesting cocktail with it, always try it neat. I think that's the same of whiskey, gin, Scottish vodkas as well. You know, I sip quite a few of those neats. Um, and when I learn about other spirits, you know, uh, good quality tequilas and uh, as such as well, I think you should always try them neat. Any, any spirit that has taken the effort to bring you something of good quality, try it in its original form, and then play around with it and see how it goes. When you think of Scotland and spirits, you think whiskey, scotch, as we call it here in the States. Mm-hmm. I was surprised to learn that it isn't called scotch in the rest of the world, that that seems to be something unique to we Americans. It's just whiskey everywhere else, and we, we tend yeah. to call it, we call it scotch. And there's probably a whole podcast to be done on how that came about and why that is. <laughs> uh, we'll save that for another time. But with the popularity, the growing popularity of gin and the popularity of, of it becoming a neat drink, are we in any danger of Scotland losing its identity as a center for whiskey? Is there any chance that gin supplants that? Um, again, very, very interesting, but I, I would have to say no uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, if you talk about the, the, the average Scotsman, or Scots person who, who drinks, the as I already actually touched on, um, the number one alcoholic drink in Scotland by uh, quantity is actually vodka. Uh, Scots drink up to 46 bottles each a year in vodka. Um, and then you've got your gins, your beer, your cider, your wine. Whiskey, although it sounds like a very strange thing to say, is not actually that popular in Scotland. Uh, it's, it's more popular in France, in Germany, in United Kingdom, uh, sorry, in the United States, um, it, it, it's an export product. Which you know, if, if you're a whiskey fan in Scotland, it, it's kind of a really unusual thing to think of. But for the actual home market, you don't see that much of it. Scotland's always had a gold standard in it, in its quality of production of whiskey, and the Scotch industry doesn't think in terms of you know new little trends or what's happening this year. They think in terms of generations and. White spirit versus brown spirit, it always ebbs and flows in popularity. One will take over a little bit in the market, and then, you know, 10, 20 years later, brown spirit will return again. If you look back in the 1980s, that's when Scotland uh, was probably at its its toughest time with popularity of whiskey, and a lot of distilleries shut down in 1983 um, because of that. But then, you know, it comes back, and whiskey is as popular as ever, and it's not a fad. It's got 10 years of kind of uh, well-documented increase, new markets in, in India, um, in, in China, in, in, South, uh, in South America as well. And there have been little glitches. There's, you know, there's obviously the, the huge increase in um, of, uh, the ingredients. As I said, barrels have doubled in price in the last year. Uh, anti-corruption laws in China a couple of years ago, that had a, an actual sizable influence on uh, the amount of whiskey that was being sold. 
Um, but it, it, it persists and it, it's, it's done very, very well. Um, and that's despite, you know, uh, I think it was just yesterday that uh, we had uh, one of the most prominent uh, whiskey reviewers, uh, Jim Murray, uh, his top five whiskies. Again, not a single Scottish whiskey was listed in there. And uh, that's happened with a few awards in the last couple of years. But people still recognize that those are just opinions and that Scottish whiskey is of a very, very good quality. So I, I wouldn't worry about it. And even so, as a kind of counterpoint to that, as a kind of wishful thinking, I think Scotland should be seen as a hub for quality alcohol production full stop. You know, if you go into a shop on on the Royal Mile or you go into a specialist spirit shop anywhere in Scotland now, yes, you've got your whiskey, but you've actually got, what, 60 different Scottish gins there. You've got incredible Scottish vodkas that have been produced in the last couple of years, such as a Ogilvy vodka. Uh, Scotland has distilled its first rum, dark matter rum, last year. Um, and then there's the, the craft beer uh, range, which is absolutely huge, and the quality is amazing as well. Um, I think Scotland should just now be seen as a, a great hub for good quality alcohol. My thanks, as always, to my guest, Stephen Shand. If this podcast has whet your appetite for a sampling of Firkin Gin, you won't find it on the shelves of any package store here in the USA. Well, at least not yet. But it can be ordered online via the Glenmore website. And the link is, of course, in our show notes at our website, www.underthetartansky.scot. Of course, if you're in Scotland, just take a stroll down the Royal Mile to one of the spirits shops there. One final note. While Stephen and I had a bit of fun talking about snake oil, elixirs, and the medicinal powers of gin, nothing in this podcast should be taken to suggest anything but a strict adherence to responsible drinking. Alcoholism is a serious addiction. There are many avenues of treatment available both in the UK and the USA if you or a loved one needs help with a drinking problem. Until next time, I'm Glenn Moyer. Slashava. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. Learn more on our website at www.glennlmoyer.com. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. And while you're there, check out our online shop where you can buy exclusive Under the Tartan Sky logo apparel and other items. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore tartansky. That's the underscore symbol, tartansky. And thank you for listening.